be seated. Today we return to the series on the book of Daniel. When we last saw Daniel, it was at the end of chapter 6. He had been delivered by God from the lion's den and he was living prosperously under Darius, uh, the, the ruler of the Medo-Persian empire there at the end of chapter 6. But now as we come to chapter 7, we notice a shift taking place in the storyline of the book of Daniel. From the more biographical, historical that had, has been the case for chapters 1 through 6 to the futuristic and apocalyptic now in chapter 7 and the rest of the book. So we need to put our seatbelts on as we journey in to this very interesting and sometimes mystifying world of apocalyptic literature in the book of Daniel. But the second part of the book of Daniel is God giving us a glimpse into the future. And so it's very, very significant. And one thing that we'll find is that that old ancient conflict between Babylon and Jerusalem that was introduced in Daniel chapter 1 and is the backdrop of every event in Daniel chapter 1 through Daniel chapter 6 continues to be raging in the rest of the book of Daniel. So as we study this, keep in mind that conflict between Babylon, the city of man, and Jerusalem, the city of God, is very much at the center of what God is showing us in the second part of Daniel, as well the mysterious purposes of God that we saw time and time again in chapters 1 through 6 are continued to unfold for us in the rest of the book of Daniel. So to set the stage for our journey into Daniel chapter 7, I'd like to share with you an experience that I had recently. Over the Christmas season, I discovered an old family photograph from a Christmas many years ago, and the picture depicted our three children sitting around the Christmas tree. And as I sat there early in the morning and I looked at that photograph, uh, I was overwhelmed with emotion, joy, fond memories, a little bit of sadness because those days have long since faded from our family life. But it's interesting that there was a powerful story for me in that picture. And as, as I got, as I allowed the story that that picture told to sink deeply in my heart, I was greatly moved. And so we have the old saying, a picture is worth what? A thousand words. It really is true. And I want to suggest to you that as we look at chapter 7 and chapter 8 in particular, we see God giving us pictures, images. 
And we must not merely try to identify the various components of the ministry. No, we must, like Daniel, get into the story that those pictures are telling. And if we do, under the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, we will be moved, for we're not looking at an old family photograph. We're looking at God himself giving us a picture of what he will do in the future. And so as we look at chapter 7, I want to divide it up for you. We see really three images, three pictures, three parts of a picture. As we look at chapter 7 as one whole picture, we see three parts of a picture. And today we'll be looking at just one part, the first part, verses 1 through 8. And it's a picture of man, specifically man's depravity. And then next week, we'll look at another part of this picture that God is crafting for us in Daniel chapter 7. But it's a picture that shows us something about God, God as the righteous one and divine judge, one that has dominion. And then finally... As we get to the end of chapter 7, we'll see the third image, the third part of this picture, which is ever so glorious because it's a picture of victory and the eternal reign and rule of God's kingdom. Now today, uh, I want to look specifically at verses 1 through 8, and I want to give you my outline for that. And it's in your bulletin, so you can look in your bulletin and the sermon outline page and see that. But here we find uh, in Daniel, God, God painting a picture for us of these, these images. And they're rather graphic and interesting images. And as we journey into Daniel now, in these first eight verses of chapter uh, 7, I want to suggest to you that we first need to look at the big picture the context of Daniel chapter 7. And then secondly, we'll look at the images in particular, and you'll see the heading there, beastly picture. It truly is a beastly picture. And then thirdly, we will look at the bleak picture. Because as we work through this passage today, and if we... submit ourselves to the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to work inwardly that, that, that we interact with the story that, that this picture tells us. We'll have to ask the question, how then do I respond? And what we find is a bleak picture of the world. But I want to suggest to you that we respond in grief, but we also respond in trust and hope. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. If you'd open your Bibles, remain seated. I want to read this for us. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, 
the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. We do need to pray. Our Father, we come to this passage, and it is mystifying in so many levels, and yet it's your word. It's given not to confuse us, but to reveal truth to us. And so we, we call out to you, God the Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds and show us what you would have for us in this text. In Jesus' name, we pray. Well, let's begin by looking at the big picture of Daniel chapter 7. I want us to look at the time frame because we find that in verse 1, Daniel is having this dream. And we would expect that chapter 7 chronologically would follow chapter 6, but that's not what we find because in verse 1 we find Daniel had this dream during the reign of Belshazzar of Babylon. You may remember at the end, very end of verse 5 and into verse 6, Darius had, uh, or Belshazzar had been uh, killed and Darius and the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over. So the rewind button has been pushed, and chronologically we're moving back in time to Babylon as it was before its fall and under the reign of Belshazzar. Now, why is that significant? Because I want to suggest to you that the best way to understand what is going on here in Daniel chapter 7 and, by the way, Daniel chapter 8 is to see that these images parallel Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And so it's important that we understand that the time frame is shifted back to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Belshazzar, but really meaning to, to make our minds go back to Babylon and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, let's look then just very, very briefly at this dream Nebuchadnezzar dreamed way back in chapter 2. You may remember that he dreamed of a great image and it had a head of gold. Of course, that was Nebuchadnezzar and representing the empire of Babylon. Secondly, the arms and chest were of silver. And as we studied this some 
some months ago, that, that was the Medo-Persian Empire, represented that empire. And then there was the middle section and the thighs that were of bronze that represented the Greek Empire, especially Alexander the Great. And then the fourth empire, the fourth part of this image, with the iron legs and feet of clay and iron, representing the Roman Empire. But there was another feature to this dream, as you may recall, that there was this little stone that was cut out, not by human hands, and that little stone struck the feet of that image, and it collapsed and was utterly destroyed, and even the remnant of that statue, of that great image, was blown away so that nothing was left. And then that little stone turned into a great mountain. Well, the meaning was simply this that the worldly kingdoms are finite. They rise and they fall. But there's one kingdom that has always been the kingdom of God. And it remains and one day will overpower the kingdoms of men and utterly destroy them. And the kingdom of God will last forever. I also want us to see something very important here. We may ask the question, all right, how does Daniel's dream in chapter 7 parallel Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2? And I would suggest to you it's by way of progression. We see in Daniel Daniel chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there is a progression of power from in these four kingdoms. And now we see in Daniel chapter 7, there's another progression, but it's a progression of depravity. And so here's the big picture that we really need to grasp of chapter 7. As, the progress, as these kingdoms progress in power, there is one kingdom that's more powerful, God's kingdom, and will overcome and reign forever. As in Daniel's dream... Chapter 7, these same kingdoms, there's a progression of greater and greater depravity. There is one who is righteous, and righteousness will prevail and judge sin finally and ultimately. And the kingdom of God will reign forever, and righteousness will win in the end. This is the big picture of chapter 7. This really is the big picture of the rest of the prophecy of Daniel. But now we want to look specifically at verses 1 through 8 and these, this beastly picture. National emblems often include animals. You think of our national emblem being the bald eagle. And the bald eagle is a, is a beast of prey. A predator. And so, in some senses, and I guess you could view this negatively, I see it positively that there's a real power and confidence in the bald eagle. And so, it's a proper emblem for a superpower like the United States of America. Well, we find in, in Daniel chapter 7 that animals and beasts are emblematic, emblematic of four nations that emerged from the great chaos. And so let's look first, as we dive into verse 1, at the origins 
of these four beasts. Look at verse 3. It tells us that, that out of the great sea came these beasts. And then we're told that in verse 2, that the four winds of heaven had blown and stirred up this sea. So what I, what I want you to have as kind of a word picture in your mind is just this chaotic, tumultuous, um, uncertain, very horrific scene of just this sea raging. And out of that comes these four beasts. So how are we to understand this? The great sea and, and chaos is a symbol of godlessness. Where God is, <laughs> where there's not um, God reigning, there's chaos, right? And so, and then interestingly, that we have four winds. Think of four compass points. And I, I want you to have this in your mind too, that the four winds coming and stirring up this sea represents the all-encompassing sovereignty, the absolute sovereignty of God stirring up that great sea to bring about these monsters. These monsters didn't come about because they were self-created. They did not come about because of of the theory of evolution, they came about because the sovereign God brought them about. Mystery of God's purposes. And what was the character of these beasts? I think the character of these beasts, the nature of these beasts, is related to their origin, chaos and godlessness. And I would suggest to you that these four beasts are indicating the kingdoms of men and their rebellion against God. Their godlessness, because out of godlessness they were brought. And toward godlessness they are moving towards greater and greater godlessness. Now, as far as identifying these, these four beasts, I, we really don't have to stretch our imaginations too far to see the identification of the four beasts is, is exactly parallels the identification of the four empires in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. So, the Babylonian empire then is described in verse 4 as the lion with wings of an eagle. And in fact, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, interestingly enough, describe Nebuchadnezzar as a lion and as an eagle. And so here we find this imagery for the Babylonian empire. And notice that the wings are plucked, and then this image is made uh, to stand like a man and giving a man's mind. And I think that points to the fact of Nebuchadnezzar was, was humbled, remember that? And he was sent out into the wilderness as a madman, and then he was restored. Now, the second beast, the Medo-Persian Empire, is a bear, verse 5. And you may remember back when we studied chapter 5, the very end, just within one night, the entire Babylonian Empire collapsed. It was just a, a swift takeover by Darius and the Medo-Persians. And here we have suddenly the second beast comes up from the chaos of the godless sea. And 
there it, the, the text tells us in verse 5 that he's raised up on its side. I think that possibly com, uh, could mean that, that the bear is raised up on its hind legs in this very aggressive bear-like posture that makes you want to run. And as I was told by one of our elders, the key to surviving in bear country is to go with someone who doesn't run as fast as you do. Let's have a moment of silence to let that sink in. Really good advice, by the way. (laughs) And we find here that the text tells us that this bears to go about to devouring much flesh. And, and there's, there's, there's this idea of this savage empire building of the Medo-Persian empire, bear-like. And then thirdly, the Greek empire. The, 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 the third beast is a, a leopard-like critter with four bird wings and four heads. And it, this is in verse 6, and it's given dominion. It's really interesting that this thing is giving dominion. And you may recall the Greek empire and Alexander the Great and how he got bored because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. And the swift, predatory, powerful leopard is such a, a telling symbol of Alexander the Great and Greek and, their, and his craving for world domination. And now we come to the fourth beast, the Rome, with its iron teeth and ten horns. This beast is different, as we see in verse 7. It's described not in animal-like ways, but in terrifying, horrific ways. We, we see words like, he's terrifying, he's dreadful, he's exceedingly uh, strong. This, this beast is, is described as one who goes about devouring and breaking and stamping its, its prey. And once again, it doesn't take too much of a stretch of the imagination to see the methodical savagery and brutality of the Roman army as they marched and systematically conquered one people after another, after another, after another, and they trampled underfoot anyone in their path. Now, what's unique about this fourth beast, not only that it's not specifically described in an animal-like way, but it has these ten horns. And then we're told that three of those ten horns (laughs) are plucked out from the roots as this little horn uh, rises up. And the, the little horn has eyes and a mouth. And so it obviously represents a person And though the ESV doesn't do as much justice, it just simply states at the end of verse 8 that this little horn speaks uh, great things. I think the better way to interpret that is that this little horn speaks pompous, prideful, and rebellious things, seeking its own glory. Now think of Adam and Eve, and what was at the root, I mean, one thing that is that we have to consider about their sin 
is that they wanted to be autonomous from God. I can be God. And certainly the autonomous nature of this fourth beast is very, very clear. This rebellion is very, very clear. The self-seeking glory of this beast and pride is very, very clear. And we'll see this unfold in the weeks to come if you're not convinced yet. So we have found in chapter 2 a progression of power of these kingdoms eventually being overpowered by the mighty God and his kingdom. And we see in Daniel chapter 7 this progression of sin to greater and greater and greater depravity to be brought before the throne of judgment where righteousness prevails. This brings us to this theological point as we look at Daniel chapter 7. We see here the doctrine of total depravity. Ephesians 2 and verses 1 through 3 that was read earlier tells us that by nature mankind is a sinner. And you were dead at the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then Paul, remember, in Romans 3, 23, said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These scriptures and many other ones point to the fact that that man is born dead in sin. And unless God does something, he will remain dead in sin and suffer the punishment before a righteous judge one day. We read a great summary of the doctrine of total depravity and sin, as we read together, Confession of Faith, chapter 6, page 852 in your hymnal. You know, it seems at times that, that man has gotten as sinful as he possibly can get. Have you ever thought that as you're looking at some horrific example of human depravity and yet we know that's not the case the total in total depravity does not mean man is as sinful as he can be it's not depraved in degree it's depraved in extent that every molecule of man's nature is tainted with sin And why is it? We've already talked about a progression of sin in in Daniel chapter 7. What I don't mean to indicate by that is that man man does get worse and worse and worse, but man will likely never get as bad as he can be because of the common grace of God that restrains evil. In other words, Pharaoh could have been more wicked. Nebuchadnezzar could have been more wicked. Nero could have been more cruel and more evil. Hitler, and as we just look through history, all of the evil people could have been worse. ISIS today could be worse. And yet in God's common grace, he restrains evil, and sometimes he removes the restraint, and depravity seems to fester, and then he brings the restraint back to bear. 
we see that God, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27, gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, verse 24. But yet God ultimately restrains man from being as sinful as he could be, and here's the reason why. If the depravity, if this progression that we see in in Daniel chapter 7 is left unrestrained by the common grace of God, no one would be able to endure life on this earth because it would be so utterly evil and wicked. So praise God for His common grace. Praise God for His mysterious purposes that restrain sin in some times and eases up a bit in other times to, as Paul says, give, give them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. The beastly picture shows the kingdoms of men depraved and set against the kingdom of God. And thankfully, every sinner is under the sovereign rule and restraining power of God. This paints a pretty bleak picture, doesn't it? Of, of the world. And if you're sitting here today uncaring, unmoved, then you haven't allowed the picture that God has painted to sink into your soul and move you. And so you've lost the opportunity for this word picture of God to do a work in your life by showing you how sinful and depraved humanity really is. In verse 28, the end of chapter 7, Daniel says this, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept kept the matter in my heart. Daniel was overwhelmed. By this image and the other two images that follow. Because he he was given this word picture. And it greatly affected him. As it should affect us even today. As we're reading about it in God's word. So how then should we be moved in response? And I'm going to give you three ways very, very quickly. First of all, we should be grieved over this bleak picture of the depravity of, of humanity, there are scores and scores and scores of lives being lived even now out of the chaos of the godless sea. And because of that, they are shipwrecked and will eventually perish if they remain alienated from God. And so we should have a sense of grief for the lost in this fallen, dark, bleak world today. Think of the attack that Christians are suffering today and the Christian faith is suffering today. Think of the progression, even in our own country, of the moral decay that is so clearly evident in now 
And some years ago, as we celebrated, not celebrated, but recognized a couple of weeks ago, the legalization of abortion and now the legalization of same-sex marriage. Think of Christians being persecuted worldwide and how grievous that that is. Think of our Syrian brothers and sisters who are being executed by ISIS because they believe in Jesus. As we look at this bleak, depraved world in which we live, a response is grief and sadness and a heavy heart. We should be overcome, overwhelmed with it. Not destroyed by it, but overwhelmed with the sin that invades this world. But perhaps that's not the greatest grief. Secondly, we are grieved over the lost and the institutions that are set against the people of God, trying to destroy the people of God. But how much more should we we be grieved over the sin that is in our own heart? Yes, you and me, Christian, those who are, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, 4, made alive in Christ. And as we read in our confession earlier, though redeemed, the old remnant of that sin nature is still there, and we sinned. Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want as a Christian, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to do, I do. Then he said, who can deliver me from this body of death? In verse 25, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Boy, I tell you, this, this first scene in the book of Daniel, this word picture of these four beasts that God, God has painted for us, show forth a very bleak world, and our response is grief, both for the world in sin and for the sin that we commit. But there's a third response, and this is really what I want to leave you with today. The third response is this. In light of all this bleakness and depravity, there is hope, there is a future, and so we're called to trust. To trust in God, to trust in His purposes as as mystifying as they may be, like, God, why would you allow me to continue to sin? Why would you allow sinful men to rule countries that sin? What's interesting to me is that Daniel's, or uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, remember the fourth kingdom extended into the time of the stone being revealed. And what's also interesting to me, in Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast extends into the time that we'll see next week in chapter 7 and verse 13, that the Son of Man is revealed. And what I want us to see here is that in this picture of bleakness, in in this progression of sin, the light of of the Son of Man shines brightly. Jesus comes 
in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the godliness of the peoples of this world. And he offers redemption from the chaotic, godless sea to be a part of his eternal kingdom. He offers to you and me who are redeemed forgiveness and rest and hope and restoration as we seek him in this bleak and hostile world. He offers forgiveness to us who struggle with that old depraved nature even on this side of eternal life. Remember Matthew 4, we read, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those who, for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That really is the lesson for you and me today. Jesus is the answer for those still in the chaos of the great sea and for you and me today who continue to struggle with that old depraved sin nature we must be moved by this picture of depravity but listen to me many times more should we be moved by the picture of a glorious savior coming and redeeming And I want to leave you with that today as we pick up the storyline in the second part of the picture as the glorious Son of Man is revealed. And we need to keep our eyes focused on Him, the light that gives life in the midst of a bleak, dark, depraved world. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask you to grant us grace. We ask you to bless us as your people. We ask you to give us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.